0: Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Plimming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. And in this season of Talking Theology, it's my privilege to bring you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today, exploring the relationship between science and faith. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. Does suffering belong to a good creation, or is it just a result of the fall? How does evolution challenge traditional understandings of the presence of suffering in our world? What does... God's love and power look like in a world of pain? In a world facing ecological catastrophe, where might hope be found? And how does the way we understand suffering affect the way we experience hard times for ourselves and for others? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Bethany Solredder. Bethany is a postdoctoral research fellow in science and religion at the Laudato C. Research Institute at Campion Hall and the Ian Ramsey Centre for Science and Religion at the University of Oxford. Our books include God, Evolution and Animal Suffering, The Odyssey Without a Fall. And our title today is How Could Theology and Science Together Help Us Rethink Suffering in Our Evolving World? Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Bethany Solreda, welcome to Talking Theology.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me here today. I'm absolutely delighted.
0: Bethany, I wonder if you wouldn't mind introducing a little bit about yourself, your own journey of research, and in particular how you became interested in uh, the questions of science, suffering, and faith that that we're exploring today.
1: Yeah, well, as you can probably hear, my accent is Canadian, so I'm from a town called Edmonton, which is most well known for having the hockey player Wayne Gretzky, who is, you know, the great one, as we say. And while I went to a small Bible college there, I started thinking about this question of suffering and evil in the world. And it was particularly acute for me because I was also at a church at the time where the the pastor was quite abusive, not sexually so, but he was... You know, manipulative and destructive of people in the congregation. I remember just thinking, how in the world does God allow this to happen? And so I started exploring the question of, of suffering and started thinking actually about Religious violence, people like the Templars and people who did violence in the name of Christ. And so I enrolled in a history program at Regent College in Vancouver. And then the summer before I went, I met a local professor named Dennis Lamoureux, who happens to have the only chair in science and religion in Canada. And he said, well, why don't you come do science and religion? You can look at these questions through the lens of science, through the lens of theology, and really be able to contribute something that's unique, something that's interesting to our time. So, I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. I'll, I'll come do that. And so, as I started engaging in science and religion, it wasn't actually the science that first drew me. It was the way that bringing science to the table changed how I read the biblical text you know, if you understand that ancient Hebrews thought of the sky as a hard dome, then in Revelation, when the sky is rolled up like a scroll, it suddenly makes sense in a way that it doesn't if you think of the sky as an atmosphere. And so trying to understand, does evolution fit with the Bible? What about dinosaurs? What about can the Bible be false and still be trusted? All those kind of questions are what really drew me into the science and religion realm. And then I started applying that to this existential angst I had over the, over the questions of suffering and evil. Let's
0: look at first principles and think about the main ways in which that question of suffering and evil have been approached and articulated within Christian theology. I wonder if you could just describe the kind of main elements of that discussion, the different ways in which suffering has been explored theologically over the years, and then perhaps how has the theory of evolution challenged those understandings?
1: Yeah, thanks. Well, first of all, I think nearly all reflection on the problem of suffering has largely been about human suffering, so I think that's the first thing to say about theodicy, which theodicy is this branch of theology that deals with the question of how God can be good in, in light of evil. So in theodicy, most of it has been human-centered and there have really been two major solutions that time and again have risen to the top. One is called the free will defense. It's the idea that God created a perfectly good world. And when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, everything came tumbling down. And suddenly you have sickness emerging, you have death emerging, you have, you know, misery and all our woe. The second approach. So, in the first approach, you're basically saying, God didn't create this, it's it's our fault. We're the ones who are responsible for, for the state of all suffering, and we deserve it. The second view says, well, you may not deserve all the suffering you encounter, but God uses it as a way to draw you into closer community with God's self. So, this is sometimes called the veil of, of soul-making, the idea that suffering Even when it's unearned due to natural evil or or other sorts of things, it becomes an opportunity for us to grow into true humanness. Now, when evolution comes in, you're suddenly saying, okay, well, there's a huge chronological problem with that first picture, the idea that it all came tumbling down in the Garden of Eden, because suddenly we have dinosaurs eating each other and dying of cancer 120 million years ago. That doesn't fit if it all came in with humans who are quite new, geologically speaking, you know. Modern humans are about 50,000 years old. So, huge chronological problem there. And a few people have sort of tried to get around that by saying, well, maybe the devil is the one who messed up evolution and we simply messed up humanity. But the bigger problem with evolution is that if you take the idea that natural selection is still one of the primary mechanisms. It means that death and suffering and competition and violence aren't accidents in the world. They're not contrary to God's world. They're actually tools in God's creative toolbox for creating and developing the kind of life that God wants. And that that really poses some some theological questions.
0: And I wonder if we can explore that last point and the theological question it raises, that it seems to me addresses what you describe as what's sometimes called the cosmic fall narrative. And you explore this in your book, don't you? God Evolution and Animal Suffering, in which you say, well, actually you say, let's look at this question of suffering, not through the lens of humans, but through the lens of the animal world. And and you suggest that the Bible does not teach unambiguously a cosmic fall narrative just describe the cosmic fall narrative for us and how it's different to the other fall narratives and then sort of say, well, what's at stake if that narrative is actually perhaps not as much there as we thought it was?
1: Sure. So, I mean, as the very word fall implies, it means that there's an original perfection that's lost due to something going wrong. So in the cosmic fall narrative. It's the idea that with particularly, I mean, you can have different sorts of cosmic fall narratives, but essentially it says that suffering, death, decay, bad weather, the tilt of the earth, I don't know, whatever, whatever you want to say is wrong with the world happened as a result of sin and not as a direct causal Effect due to natural causes. So I'm not saying, you know, we pollute the earth and therefore, you know, suffer lung cancer from air pollution. That would be a direct cause. The cosmic fall is that either as God's punishment or as some sort of spiritual degradation, creation has fallen from its original integrity. So the ways that most people understand that being manifested in the traditions. whether you're looking at Calvin or Luther, I mean, they're saying the existence of disease. I mean, Calvin really did think that the tilt in the earth's axis, which causes extreme seasonal shifts, was a result of sin in the world. So he sort of imagined the world on, on a straight axis, and then sin happens and it shifts that 14 degrees or whatever. And so, basically, you have this physical manifestation of sin. So, the majority of people, when you talk about the fall, think about the human fall, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden falling, and then suddenly lions looking at lambs and going, hey, you look tasty for the very first time. And as, as I referred to before, some people will say that it was actually Satan and the fallen angels who instigated a cosmic fall, not within human history, but at the very beginning of creation, so that the whole evolutionary process has been marred. And that would be something C.S. Lewis defended, Michael Lloyd, Gregory Boyd, a few, a few different people have put that forward as a way to solve the theological issues. But if you set that aside, if you say, as, as I do, that we're going to try and proceed without using fallenness, then we start getting into, okay, this world, with all of its ambiguity, with its pain, with its suffering, with its death, is the world God called good. And that becomes both very tricky, but really generative as well because it starts to push you into the scary places about what love is and how love is communicated in creation. It's not necessarily a rosy or a pretty cosy picture, but I think it's one that is robust in times of of change and crisis like we're facing right now with climate change.
0: We'll come back to that in a moment, if we may, Bethany. Just to clarify, therefore, your argument is not that the human fall in how we understand it didn't take place but rather the implications for creation that people have extrapolated from a human rebellion against god that they are not necessarily the case but do you think the language of fall is still appropriate from a human perspective
1: yes again, I think fall is problematic because it assumes an original perfection. So what I would rather talk about is the entrance of sin and human innocence before that. (laughs) So in the same way that a child growing up from a baby to an adulthood at some point has their first sin. And I think that's, that's a move from innocence to sinfulness, not a move from perfection to a somehow degraded condition. Maybe that's a small distinction, but I prefer the language of the entrance of human sin. So in no way am I saying sin is not a reality we face or that the world is exactly as God wanted it. But rather the natural processes that shaped the world are God's processes. So let's
0: explore that a little bit more. You said that the existence of Of disease, for example, is not evidence of a cosmic fall, but rather is part of that creation which God calls good. And you say that takes us into a a tricky place, but also a generative place, because it helps us explore questions of what love is. I wonder if you could therefore talk us through the classic kind of theodicy problem, how can a God of love allow suffering to take place? With this lens in view, what does love look like and how does this affect the way that god acts in his relationship to god's creation and the place of suffering within that
1: yeah so that original question as you put it sort of stands on three legs as it were and it says you know god is all loving all good god is all powerful and evil exists and the idea is those three are impossible to hold in a happy tension, because if God were good and powerful, God would stop evil. And if God lacked the power to stop it, that would make sense. And that's largely the process theist solution is to say, God would like to stop suffering, but as Tom Ward says in the title of his uh, recent book, God can't. (laughs) And, And then you could have other solutions that say, well, actually, God's not very loving, And somebody like Wesley J. Wildman would say that. Well, when it comes down to it, God is not in the caring business. But again, I think that that's an important departure from the Christian theistic view. So I think what I see as the place of love in this picture is that love is expressed most deeply in letting the other be themselves, even when that hurts. So, one of my favorite theologians, W.H. Vanstone, in his book, Love's Endeavor, Love's Expense, says that the lack of internal limit to love is often marked by its external restraint. (laughs) Or I think he says it better than that, but it's something like that. And essentially what he's saying is that if love can't give freedom to the other, can't let the other be themselves as they are, then it's not real love. And I think that's actually a message that resonates really well in the contemporary moment. But of course, the effect of that is that sometimes the beloved is going to make choices that you don't necessarily think is the best way forward. And so I think evolution is one long example of God giving freedom to creatures to be themselves and not micromanaging the process, not saying, oh, that's a little too violent for my taste. Or, you know, parasites, you know, you're cheating. You're cheating on the regular exchange. I'm going to just, I'm just going to cut that off. God doesn't do that. God allows all creatures to be themselves. And so you grow, what you have growing up together is both the wonders of altruism and cooperation and mutualistic symbiosis, and you also have parasitism and carnivorosity and disease, infections, that kind of thing.
0: And so therefore, you use the example, don't you, I think, of dinosaurs. And you said, well, if dinosaurs hadn't existed in your book, you said all sorts of things. Wouldn't have happened as a result. It was awful that the dinosaurs died out. Just give us that example and tell us why that makes a difference.
1: Yeah. Well, in that part, I'm talking about the nature of redemption and how God can take things that, at the time they happen, aren't tragic. And, you know, so a huge meteorite 65 million years ago hits the Yucatan Peninsula, causes immediate and wide climate change, mass extinction including the extinction of dinosaurs, which, I mean, I love dinosaurs. Most people love dinosaurs. We all grew up on, you know, Jurassic Park. Maybe I'm dating myself there. But, you know, we love dinosaurs. And so it's a tragedy that their extinction happened. But out of that, these little ground-dwelling creatures, you know, four-footed, running around, burrowing mammals, began to have all this ecological wealth opened up to them and started prospering and diversifying in ways they couldn't while dinosaurs were taking up much of the resources. And eventually that results in glories like the symphonies of Mozart or Bach or the Sistine Chapel or dance and human love. And so I don't think going back 65,000 years, that God said, okay, I'm just going to make sure that a meteorite hits the earth at just this time, because we really need to move this story on a little quicker. Rather, I think God takes a tragedy that happens and says, okay, let's build new. And I think that that is constantly God's process in taking things that are tragedies, like mass extinctions, and building something new out of them. I'm trying to avoid that phrase, build back better. because, <laughs> But in essence, that's what it is. God constantly builds back better. God's love is more creative than the tragedies the world can hold. And that's my defeat of evil. That's my justification of God is saying, the creativity and the love of God will always outstrip evil, no matter how tragic.
0: And you talk about that redemptive work of God. How do you map the person and work of Christ onto that broader redemptive purpose and work of God in relation to this creation where animals are allowed to be themselves and where evil exists as part of the created order?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a sense in which... The life, the death, the resurrection of Christ essentially tells us what creation has meant all along. It makes sense of the fact that all new life is based on the death of older life, that every spring only comes after the death of winter. And so when we see this vibrant man who is killed innocently, put to death, just like so many creatures have been over the course of evolution, you know, met an untimely death, we also begin to see that there's actually life after that. There's redemption after that, not only in this world, and we could talk about different forms of redemption. So the little baby bird is eaten by a passing fox, and yet that fox is cubs survive and thrive because of the death of the baby bird you know we can we can see energy moving through trophic systems as redemptive but also saying it goes beyond that there's there's life beyond this world in the new creation that also offers just that glimpse of hope that we see in the resurrected Christ and so i think there's two sort of levels I see it on. One, Christ as, as the sort of example of the victor over what could seem just the tragedy of the world. But also the idea that Christ is kind of the organizing algorithm that brings these disparate storylines and is able to tell the story of creation as a redemption story. So if we go back to the dinosaurs for a moment, you could say that actually the glories of Bach are not just a result of the dinosaur dying, but there's something about how their legacy is enriched by being part of what causes Mozart, right? So there's a sense in which we read that back and we give them honor for having died and provided us with this option. And and that's the case when we eat anything, right? Uh, we, we have a contemporary cultural moment where eating meat is seen as causing death and eating vegetables is not. But actually, that's just being worried about literal bloodshed. Everything we eat, we have killed something, we've killed some other life to sustain our own. And so, all human achievements are based on the death of other living creatures. And I think there's some way in which those achievements can then be read back to the honour of those who died to provide it.
0: You mentioned Jesus Christ as the controlling algorithm that tells us this deep story of creation. And you also refer to the new creation. How do you see the place of or absence of suffering within that new creation and how that new creation is different to the creation that we see in our world today, which God called good?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question, because I can't explain how it would work. (laughs) Because of course, here on earth, suffering and pain are extremely valuable and necessary parts of life. So people who... Lose their ability to feel pain, which is an example of that is Hansen's disease, or what used to be called leprosy, is simply an infection of the pain nerves, which slowly die. And all the subsequent things we associate with leprosy, losing fingers and stuff, actually just happens because people don't know how to protect themselves without pain warning them that there's a problem you know, so they'll burn themselves or break their leg and keep walking on it, you know, they damage themselves further and further. And so we actually need physical pain to live a good life here. And it's similar with suffering, actually. So some of the most acute suffering that we feel as people is social suffering is ostracism, betrayal, those sorts of things. But if you actually don't feel those things, that's a disorder called psychopathy. (laughs) Those are people who don't feel that sort of social suffering, and it's often disastrous as a result. So those are things we actually need to live good lives now. By some new act of creation, God promises that that will not be how it will be in the new creation, that we won't need pain and suffering as (laughs) <laughs> warning signal. So I don't I don't know how it that works, but I do trust that there will be a way God can figure that out. And I think part of it is because there will be a different set of goods there than there is here.
0: You mentioned earlier about the fact that this place where suffering and pain is part of the creation which God calls good it takes us to a Tricky, but a generative place. You said it helps us explore what love is. It helps us also explore what hope looks like, and it takes us to a very interesting place in terms of the future of creation. I wonder if you just comment on how the way of looking at suffering that you're articulating perhaps gives us a a new perspective or an alternative perspective on ecological disaster and the climate crisis that we're facing, where the language is of really heading to a point of no return what's your perspective on that?
1: Yeah, I think where I go with that is that we have gotten used to having a great amount of control in Western society. And when we lack control, we begin to freak out. And generally, when we control things, we want to keep things the same. We like the status quo. We want predictability. We want things to be ordered and measured according to our preference. And unfortunately what this long history of evolution and suffering says is that's not the world God has given us, (laughs) you know? So, well, I absolutely agree that the change that we're seeing is anthropogenic is human caused and it's human caused largely because of the greed of the Western world and, and corporations. At the same time, change was the only thing that was ever assured in the future of human history. So climate change was going to happen and has happened many many times before even within human history, right? We came out of an ice age about 12,000 years ago and at least one prediction would say we would have reentered another climate disaster in 1500 years when a new ice age would have begun. So, in one way, I'm saying the changes we're seeing, the effects that it will have on the poor is the result of sin. There's no question about that. But the idea that God is active in the place where the effects of human sin are known is also foundational to how we go forward. So, I think we are going to experience change. It will be devastating. At the same time, the earth has been through many, many instances of climate change, many much worse than what we're headed for. We're not talking about the extinction of the human species. We're not talking about the end of the world. We are talking about significant changes that will have huge influence on our infrastructure and that probably is already outside of our ability to control. But in a sense, all that does is dispel the illusions that we have built up through our technological expertise. In one sense, that was always the case. So it it sounds grim, and I know that it sounds grim, but (laughs) the death of every person on Earth was, again, assured. You know, my dad is a GP, and he always says, you know, I've never saved a life in my entire practice. I, I extended a few, you know, I might have shortened a few, but I've never saved a life. That's not actually what doctors do. And so in the same way, when we talk about we want to save the planet, that's not actually our role. That's not actually our place. But what we can do is help the people around us strive for justice, strive for equality, strive for a better life for people who are going to be disproportionately affected by climate change. Those are things we can do. But the fate of the planet is as it always has been in God's hands.
0: You've picked up on some of these themes in a a new book, which you're publishing called Why Is There Suffering? Pick Your Own Theological Expedition. And I know it's a really groundbreaking book in how it's structured and how it invites the readers to explore this really significant topic that we've been exploring today. Just give us, Bethany, a quick sense of what the book's about and how it might be accessible and helpful to a whole range of readers.
1: Yeah, so the book is really an attempt to help people have the opportunity to do the kind of exploration that I did during my PhD. So I said that when I did my PhD, I came to it with all this existential angst about why is there suffering? Why is God allowing these things to happen? And I was privileged enough to have three years to kind of go through all of this material most of which is totally inaccessible philosophical jargon argued through formal logic. It's terrible. And I say this as somebody who writes that kind of stuff. So what I wanted to do was offer that kind of exploration to people who don't have three years and really can't be bothered to learn all the big words. And I have so much time for that. So then I was thinking about the way that people encounter suffering. And and a few psychologists, I'm thinking particularly of Jamie Aiton at Whedon College, have done studies that show that the way we think about why we suffer actually changes how we suffer. So if you think you're suffering because God is punishing you, God is an angry judge, you have a lot worse time of it than somebody who thinks of God as a loving presence who's going to help you through this, right? So the way we frame why they're suffering changes the way we experience suffering. So this book was my attempt to really let people explore in a, in a sort of lighthearted way the different options that are available to them. And so really, it's structured in the way that these novels that I used to love were written, they were called choose your own adventure novels. And so, you know, it would start with you're walking through the woods as a princess or something. And when you came to a fork in the road, if you wanted to go up to the castle, you turn to page eight. If you want to go down to the woods, you know, you turned page 11. And so I just thought actually that could be a really fun way to let the reader have agency over the theological journey they want to take and they can flip back and try something else. So the very first question is similar to that three part structure that we did with, uh, we talked about as the basis of the Odyssey, which is the very first question you're encountered with is, is God loving and powerful? Does God exist but doesn't really care about us? Or does God not exist? And you can flip to different parts of the book and begin to see how the theological journey feels differently, depending on what sort of theological decisions you make.
0: I've had a sneak preview, Bethany, and it's a fascinating read. I wonder if I can perhaps take you back to where we started this chat, Bethany, which is the existential angst you experienced about the place of suffering in in God's world. And I just wonder if I could ask you more personally, how has this theological exploration that you've engaged with, and which you've given us an insight into, how's that engaged with your own faith, walk, discipleship, and perhaps journey of prayer?
1: I think it's been really, really helpful. In the sense of, I'm not shocked by evil in the world. I I mean, I I am shocked by it, but maybe I'm saying I'm not surprised by it, nor does it send me into into sort of a spiritual tailspin. So I think, well, there's two different types of suffering. There's suffering that happens to other people and suffering that happens to ourselves. And so I think when you see a suffering that happens to other people, I'm, I'm not spending my time or my energy saying, you know, why God is this happening? I'm saying, how can I help? How can I be part of that redemptive story that God is going to write out of this? And I think when it comes to myself, again, I, I mentioned Vanstone earlier in his book, Loves Endeavor, Loves Expense. But I think the other really amazing book he wrote was called The Stature of Waiting. And he talks about that, that uncomfortable place when we are done to... <laughs> <laughs> Just as Jesus, when He's handed over by Judas, stops being the active verb in everything, Jesus does this, Jesus does this, Jesus does this, suddenly everything is being done to Jesus. And we can look to Jesus as an example of how we can walk through our own suffering. So, again, saying, yeah, this, this may be the result of evil, this may not be what God wanted in this circumstance. But again, depending on how I respond to it, I can respond and build something out of this that is redemptive. And whether that's through forgiveness, whether that's through giving generously, whether that is, you know, it could look like so many things. Or simply, you know, in the case of a medical diagnosis saying, okay, let me be patient through this. Let me see how I can grow spiritually in this rather than spending my time fighting. So I think it's given me a lot more peace. And so I don't think it's very often that PhDs lead to existential peace, but it it was largely what happened in my case. I, I was really, really lucky in that.
0: Bethany Salreda, thank you so much for appearing on Talking Theology.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cran Hall within St. John's College, Durham University. This series of Talking Theology on the relationship between science and faith is being brought to you in partnership with the project Equipping Christian Leaders in an Age of Science. For more information
1: about Cran Hall, please visit cranmahal.com.